Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3. Verse 24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Being justified. Now, that word justified means to be declared righteous or to be set forth as righteous. Uh, it, it is a, a legal term. It would be, for instance, when somebody is found not guilty in a court of law, they, you would consider them to be justified. They are declared legally not to be guilty of that crime. Now, a court can only justify, if you want to use that term, in the case of a single crime, right? A court can't declare somebody justified overall. They can say in that specific case, this person was just. They were not guilty of what they were accused of. But here it says that, that the believer, those that believe, when it says that righteousness of God is upon them that believe, God justifies that sinner and he takes his righteousness and imputes it to them. So that it's more than just what a, what a human court can do in saying you're not guilty in this particular instance, but rather God takes his righteousness and applies it to the believer. Just like if you were to keep a, a ledger book of all your righteousnesses and unrighteousnesses, God takes and essentially blots all that out and he puts his righteousness there in its place. That's what's in the account of the believer. Uh, in other places, when it talks about, in Romans chapter 8, when it talks about how there's no condemnation and that kind of thing, that can only be true because God has put his righteousness upon the believer. And it says that we've been justified freely. And that word, freely, is an important word in Scripture. In fact, one of the very first corruptions of the word of God had to do with that word freely. Uh, put, a, put a hand here in Romans, or a, or a marker or something in Romans 3. Go back to the book of Genesis. Go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, when God created man, he gave him an instruction. And it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, And the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest, notice the word, freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He tells them every tree of the garden you can freely eat of except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says in the, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. 
Now, as you continue on then into, into Genesis chapter 2, you see how God creates woman. He gives us instruction to Adam, but he creates woman. And in Genesis chapter 3, you have another character show up, the serpent. And the serpent, who is the devil, he begins to, to tempt Eve uh, with regard to the word of God. This, uh, the, this temptation that goes on here is really a doctrinal debate really, between the serpent and Eve. And I want you to notice some of the things that that happen here with the Word of God. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, did God tell them, Don't eat of every tree of the garden? He told them, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden except for the one, right? And Satan knows what the instruction was. But, see, Satan is subtle. He's not going to come along and just say, Eve, you should disobey God. That's not what he's going to do. That wouldn't be subtlety. He's going to come and he's going to start to kind of test her knowledge of the word of God. Now, we don't know how Eve would have, you know, as we presume that Adam would have taught these things to Eve. Uh, hopefully, Adam taught them properly, but maybe Adam didn't correctly teach Eve the instruction that had been given from God. But you see, Satan comes along, and, and the, the implication there in what Satan says is how unfair of God that he would withhold something from you. Right? And he, he intentionally distorts the word of God in order to test her understanding. And I want you to notice how Eve responds. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Do you, compared with the instruction that we read in chapter 2, do you notice anything missing from her initial response? She left out the word freely. And so, first of all, you have Eve taking away from the Word of God. You know that, that uh, there's three times in the Bible where it warns against taking away from the Word of God. You have it in the book of Deuteronomy, you have it in the, the book of Psalms, and you have it in the book of Revelation. You have it in the beginning of the Bible, the middle and the end. It warns, don't take away from God's Word. And some word that you may think isn't important, like, well, like what we looked at earlier, of or in. Um, don't change God's word. Here, she leaves out. She leaves out that word freely. And that's not the only alteration she makes to the word of God. Uh, rather, She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She leaves out the word freely. Uh, she says, of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it. Now, do you remember anything about touching the tree in the instruction? She so she takes away from the Word of God. She adds to the Word of God. And, and then she says at the end, Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now that sounds like there's some uncertainty there. Maybe you died, maybe you wouldn't. God said the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so she takes away from the Word of God. She adds to the Word of God. And she waters down the Word of God. And she does this really at the... At the uh, questioning of Satan, and then you see, then Satan is going to drop his subtlety and come out in verse 4, and the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. There you have the direct contradiction of the word of God. 
And you know, Satan's using the same method today. He's getting people to take away from the Word of God, add to it, uh, change it, water it down. And the end result is people wind up denying the Word of God altogether. And, and uh, the same, you know, essentially the same sin that's committed there, you realize, I mean, Eve sins when she, when she takes of the fruit of the tree, but what led up to that was a changing of the word of God, and that's what, that's what people are doing today. If we go back to our text, you see that word freely, it's an important thing. Uh, in fact, um, when it says that we're justified freely, now we may read that and we think about it being free to us. Right? We think about how it, it, uh, it's something done by God's grace. It's not something we earn or, or whatever. But that's not really the intent of that word in that verse. Um, the, the same word there, the same Greek word that's used there, is translated in, in other places. Uh, for instance, uh, when it talks about Christ being put to death without a cause, that's the same word there. Now, you may wonder, what would be the connection between without a cause and, and freely? Um, the, you know, we, we read that word there, being justified freely, and we think about it being without a cause. But really, what it's talking about there, the, the, the word freely there isn't uh, really applying to something being free to us, but it's talking about what God is free to do. It's that God has justified us freely on his part, okay? And the, the rest of the chapter, it may not be clear yet, but the, re, or the rest of this passage we're looking at this morning uh, talks about how God was free because of the cross to be able to justify sinners. You realize that God, in, in his justice and in his holiness, he is not free to justify a sinner in his, in his justice and his holiness, there has to be a payment made. There has to be a, a uh, price paid for sin. But the cross frees God up. It allows God to freely justify. Okay? It'll, it'll become clearer a little bit later on. But you see it says that we're justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that word, redemption, it, to redeem something is to buy it back by paying a price. There's different words that are translated as redeem in the Bible, but all of them have that sense of, of paying a price to, to purchase something. And uh, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus paid a price on our behalf. Uh, Christ, when Christ went to the cross of Calvary, that wasn't just a good example of, of how we ought to give our lives for others. That's, that's a common teaching today about the cross of Christ. Um, in fact, even people that are, are you know, noted as, as Christian writers and, and thinkers, uh, you know, if you've ever read um, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, have you ever read that book? There's a lot. There's a lot good in that book, and and what it was was uh, C.S. Lewis was asked to do a series of radio programs about the basics of Christianity, and then it was put into a, a book form. But where he falls down is on on the issue of the gospel and the issue of of justification, 
And he winds up basically saying that Christ died just as a good example, that we should give our lives for others. Uh, and it's, a, you know, it's an interesting thing. I've, I've said before, there's more, there's more truth of the gospel in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia than there is in mere Christianity. And the one is written as a kind of a, a, a allegory, while the other is trying to teach Christian doctrine. And, and you see more of that idea of redemption in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe than you do when he's actually talking about you know, what the Christian teachings about, about atonement and redemption are. Uh, and it's a, it's a sad thing. But you see, there was a price that was paid. God's justice required a price to be paid. Verse 25 says, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Verse 26, To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. The word propitiation. Not a commonly used word today. Um, it's not completely uncommon. You'll, you'll run across that word even in, in modern writing from time to time. But a propitiation is a, it's a fully satisfying sacrifice. Um, to, it's, it's more of a stronger term really than appease. When you talk about appeasing somebody, that's usually something that's kind of done out of weakness or, or whatever. But propitiate, to propitiate is a fully satisfying sacrifice. Appeasement also often is a very temporary thing. It's like you appease them for now and then you have to do it again later. Propitiation is a once-for-all thing. It, it fully satisfies. Um, when it says that, that God has set him forth to be a propitiation, the, the uh, word there actually is related to the, the word mercy seat. The, the Greek word um, is related to the Greek word that's also translated as mercy seat. You remember in the, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and in the temple, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And the cover of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. And it had the cherubim, the gold cherubim on it. And that Ark of the Covenant was also called the Ark of the Testimony. Because what it held was the testimony of the sinfulness of Israel. It held the law that showed their sinfulness. It held the, the uh, bowl of manna that, remember when they were grumbling to God out in the, in the wilderness, there was one bowl of that manna, even though if they tried to keep keep manna for themselves after a day or on the, on the weekend two days. Uh, it would rot and go bad, but there was a golden bowl of manna that was preserved by God, put there in the Ark of the Covenant to, you know, as testimony of how they had grumbled against God. Aaron's rod that budded was in that Ark of the Covenant. And you remember how the, the heads of the families had rebelled and they had said, why, why is it Aaron and Moses? Why are they the ones that are so important? We're all God's people. We're, we're all holy people before God. And God said, I'm going to show who, who I've chosen. And he made Aaron's rod to bud. That was put in there. Testimony of Israel's rebellion. Um, that ark of the testimony was, a, was testimony against Israel. And those cherubim, it says specifically that they were looking down toward that mercy seat, essentially what was before the eyes of those cherubim who have a part in the, in the justice of God, they were looking at the testimony against Israel. But once a year, the high priest would come in with 
blood, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And those cherubim, rather than seeing the testimony against Israel, they saw the blood that was shed, and that place where that blood was sprinkled was called the mercy seat. And you see, we don't, God, God hasn't given us some temple to go and, and worship in. We're told we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We are the, the temple of God. But Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. Jesus Christ has been set forth as the propitiation, the fully satisfying sacrifice that stands between the justice of God and the guiltiness of the, of the uh, sinner. And so God has set him forth as that propitiation through faith in his blood. Not the blood of a, of a bull, not the blood of a goat, but the blood of Christ himself. And you see that he set him forth to declare his righteousness, God's righteousness, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now, did anybody ever get their sins forgiven before Christ died there on the cross? Of course they did. You you have all kinds of saved people in the Old Testament. They didn't necessarily understand how God was going to affect that once-for-all sacrifice, but they trusted what they had from the Lord. They trusted the revelation they had from the Lord, and they received eternal life from God, and they were justified by God. But the only way God could do that, you see, it says that in Christ dying, it declared God's righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To, to forbear, forbearance is to patiently wait for the payment of a debt. And all through the Old Testament, when, when Israel had to come, they had to come every year and offer these sacrifices and do these things over and over and over again. And God would grant them forgiveness and, and to Gentiles who believed in him and he would forgive them and, and justify them. He could do that because God was forbearing. He was patiently waiting until the time when the debt would be paid. And now that Christ has died, now you can see how God was righteous in forgiving them back there. Without the death of Christ, without, without that payment that was made, God couldn't have been righteous and forgiven those sins. But because of that payment that was made, it declares God's righteousness for that, that path, the remission, the forgiveness of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And verse 26 says, To declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, God's righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, I have a question for you this morning about the nature and and ability of God. Is it true that God can do anything? Is that true? Is that a true statement? That's an untrue statement. God can't do anything. In fact, there are things you can do that God can't do. Scripture says God cannot lie. We're pretty good at that. But God can't do it. He cannot lie. Because God is bound by his nature. God cannot do anything that's contrary to his nature. Uh, you know, when you, when you talk to people a lot about the gospel, people will, sometimes people will try and ask you questions to try and trip you up. And, and one of the questions that people sometimes will ask is they'll say, can God create a a stone so large that he can't lift it, right? Because you say God can do anything. 
and and you see what the what the problem with that question is because if God can't create the stone that large, then God can't do everything, and if He can, then and He couldn't lift the stone, then He can't do everything. But that's a you know that's an unbeliever trying to trip somebody up and doesn't realize the character of God. Can God create a stone so large he can't lift it? No, because to do so, he would have to cease to be God, and he can't do that. Can God simply forgive sins without there being a payment made for that sin? The answer, likewise, is no. He would have to cease being God. Because while God is merciful, and while God is gracious, God is also just and righteous. And God's justice requires that every offense against his holiness, there be a payment made. When, when verse 26 says that God might be just and the justifier, those are two contradictory things if you take the cross out of the equation. God could be just, which would mean he would have to condemn every single one of us to a Christless eternity in the lake of fire. That's what God would require to be just. Or he could be the justifier, which would uh, allow him to give eternal life, but he couldn't be both. He couldn't be just and the justifier, but the cross allows God to be be just and the justifier because the sin has been paid for. The debt has been paid. Jesus Christ took the exact amount, the exact punishment, that we deserve for our sin, and that's what he paid on the cross of Calvary. You realize that what, what Christ paid on the cross of Calvary was not the beating that he received from the Romans. That, you know, when, when people portray the, the death of Christ, that's usually what they portray, because that's a visible thing that you can see, right? The crown of thorns, the, the scourgings, and, and even the crucifixion itself. Those are things you can see and, and maybe relate to in some way. But do you realize that Christ, when he was on that cross, cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because Je- Jesus Christ had never experienced that before. You know, even certainly there would be a greater degree of separation when he was incarnated and and took on human flesh than what he had with God the Father before the world began. But for God the Father to forsake him, he never experienced that until you get to the cross. And it was because Jesus Christ became, go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You want a verse to, to think about and meditate on. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a good one. It says, For he, and that's God the Father, hath made him, that's Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It says, God made Christ to be sin. Not just to be a sinner, Not even just to to take on sin. It says he made him to be sin. You realize that Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary became sin personified. You know, it, 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 
it maybe would even lessen it to say that he became, you know, you can't really say he became the devil. He didn't become the person of the devil. But he became sin personified. If sin could take on human form, that's what Christ was on the cross of Calvary. And God the Father poured out his wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not a, a visible thing you could see or portray in a movie or, or anything like that. But that's what Christ suffered on the cross of Calvary. Imagine if you could become guilty for the sins of, of the world. I mean, the, the big sins and the little sins. And what the punishment that would be deserving of one person guilty of that sin, that's what Christ suffered on the cross of Calvary. See, he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. And in doing so, he was able to bridge the gap between the justice of God and the mercy of God. And he was able to, in that act, perform something that allowed God to be both just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And... That's where our hope is. We we can't save ourselves. You can't, you know, it says, By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And the verses we looked at this morning, they, they tell us how we can be justified in his sight, and it's through what Christ accomplished. If you're trying to work yourself to heaven, if you're trying to work yourself into, into God's good favor, um, the scripture says you're without hope. You're, you're condemned. Again, all have sinned and come short continually. Present tense. Come short of the glory of God. But what God offers to that unbeliever, to, or to the, I mean, he offers it to the believer, but he, he offers it to the, to the sinner, to the ungodly, um, is eternal life as a free gift. And, the sad thing is that most people, even who hear that message clearly, they choose to go on in their own works and not receive the, the free gift that God offers to them. Um, I, my prayer is that as you sit here this morning, that you have trusted that good news of what Christ accomplished. And if you haven't, let today be the day that you do. Um, you know, set aside for... For sake, Paul said all the, all the things that he could count as gain, he said he counted them but loss, and he counted them as dung. Don't worry about those things, but put your trust in what Christ did here in, in uh, these verses that we talked about this morning. When, when the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures... Uh, you know, certainly there's the idea of he did it in fulfillment of prophecy, and he did that as well. But he did it according to all that the scriptures say about what that that uh, sacrifice accomplished in the plan of God, including these scriptures. And there's a lot of people that believe that Jesus died, but they haven't trusted that he died according to the scriptures. They've, they've trusted that he died according to church tradition or, or whatever. But... Trusting that he died according to the scriptures is believing what these verses say about what that death accomplished. That he paid the price. That redemption that was in Christ Jesus. That propitiation that was accomplished there. The uh, uh, justification that God offers through it. And it brings glory to God because he can be 
just and the justifier. He can give eternal life, and yet his justice is completely satisfied at the same time. And now we can thank God for what our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished there on our behalf. Um, None of us could stand before the justice of God. But because Christ has stood there in that place and suffered what we owed, we can now stand before God with confidence, not in ourselves, but in what Christ did for us. And let's close with prayer, Lord God. We thank you for what you accomplished in your son. We thank you for the free gift of eternal life that's available to all who believe. And uh, I, I pray for any that might be here that have not received that free gift of eternal life, that they would uh, have their eyes open to the truths of these words in your word. And uh, we, we just thank you for, not just for the salvation you've provided, but that uh, that justification is, is something that um, is, is completed forever and that we can never lose that salvation. We can never uh, give it up in any way, but we, we just thank you that the work is all of you in saving us and keeping us saved. And we look forward to the, the final culmination of that when we're delivered from these bodies of flesh and, and receive our new bodies and are able to serve you in eternity. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608 608- Three three nine nine five two two. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.